Thanks to Hello Monday from LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team about how to get the most from Monday and your career. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, March 25th, and that means we're talking financials. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and on today's show, we're going to talk about the Fed's latest comments from last week, what that means for investors. We'll, of course, have one to watch for you. Uh, But we begin today with a new installment of Between Two Fools. Sally Krawcheck is keeping busy these days. Among other things, she's the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, a digital-first, mission-driven investment platform for women. She's also the chair of the Elevate Network, a 135,000-strong global professional women's network. And, oh yeah, she's also the best-selling author of Own It! The Power of Women at Work. I recently got to sit down and speak with Sally about everything from her work as an analyst on Wall Street to the great things she's doing today with Elevest and the Elevate Network. Okay, Sally, you went to University of North Carolina. You were a Moorhead scholar there. You got your degree in journalism, which I think is really interesting. Uh, MBA from Columbia. So, uh, neat educational background there. And I feel like this is a relevant question for you to start this interview. Do you feel like journalism today is in a better place or a more precarious one given the explosion of social <laughs> networking? Well, okay, interesting question. As a producer or consumer of journalism today? Well, I would say let's look at it from the perspective of a producer first. If you're a journalist, where do you feel like the world stands today as as opposed to 20 years ago? Since I'm not in the industry, so I was a journalism major at UNC and then promptly dropped it the second I got out of school. So I went to Wall Street instead. I always wanted to get back into media um, and (laughs) couldn't get a job. (laughs) you know, a Time Magazine, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not in the industry today, so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But, but, um, geez, there are a lot of layoffs right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think I've ever seen an industry convulse the way um, the, the media industry is convulsing currently. And while one thinks it is coming simply from, you know, the big, mature, traditional media companies that are being eaten alive by the new age ones. In fact, we're seeing significant layoffs at the newer media companies as well. So um, not not that a career on Wall Street was ever easy, but every once in a while, I thought, you know, maybe maybe I made a good choice. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think it's also fair to say from the consumer's perspective, it seems like there's a lot more responsibility on our shoulders as consumers to to dig around and find the more valid uh, takes in regard to journalism. I mean, I mean, I guess anybody with a blog essentially can call themselves a journalist, it feels like, these days, but that doesn't necessarily make what they're saying true. Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting time as a consumer um, because there is there's so much more um, of it, and that is there's an embarrassment of riches, and then there is the need for a critical eye. But it's very difficult as a consumer of media to know how to have that critical eye, particularly when these things sort of scroll past you on Twitter. You know, I find myself increasingly saying, I read such and such and such and such. Oh, who published it? I don't know. <laughs> you know. And so, you know, how, how do you judge um, the quality of what you're reading? So that's one thing. Then the, 
sort of third perspective of it is is as a business person who has what she thinks, what I think is an important an important message to get out. Back in the day, if I wanted to get that message out, I you know, okay, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, gosh, if you're global, maybe the FT. Um, you know, one of the three networks, there you go. And, you know, I, you try to get a reporter to report on it. That was really hard to get their attention. You'd write an op-ed and maybe it would get published and maybe it would get published six weeks from now. And then maybe you see a couple of comment letters later. Today, the ability to get, you know, an idea out is so much greater. And so at Elevest, the company I co-founded and run, um, you know, we are engaging with individuals on content every day in a way that just wasn't available to us um, even a handful of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your work as an analyst on Wall Street. I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about that for a second because our, our listeners, a lot of our listeners are investors. Uh, I, I personally am, am an analyst here with The Motley Fool. I've spent almost 10 years trying to hone that craft and, and uh, looking at your experience in the field. What was something that you did during your time as, as an analyst that you felt like gave you an edge? Worked really, 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 really hard. Yeah, that's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Refused to give up. Yeah. Um, didn't let, you know, the down days affect me for too long, though I do remember I do remember having to go home one day. I was so upset um, about, uh, I think, you know, some, some not getting a stock right or getting a piece of research wrong and, and actually having to leave the office because I was, was so devastated by it and then picking myself up the next day and coming back in. Though I do think, um, you know, I remember my director of research telling me early in my career, it's big calls on big stocks. Big calls, big stocks. Yeah. You know, find the two or three things that will make a stock go up or down a lot and be all over them um, and spend, spend your time where it matters. Because, you know, some micro cap stock, you know, some detail isn't going to make or lose people a lot of money. That's they call it big stock. Very good point there. Yeah, I think I've I've learned one thing at least as an analyst. It certainly makes you embrace the mistakes that you make because that really is I mean, those really are the best teachers at the end of the day. Um, oh, now, boy. And, <laughs> and you get to do it in and good news, you get to do it in public. In front of everyone. <laughs> in front of everybody. Exactly. Amazing. What a great what a great learning experience. <laughs> it teaches one humility, I would guess too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well you mentioned Elevest and I want to talk about Elevest and in Elevate uh, the Elevate network. Mm-hmm. You're the co-founder, yeah. the CEO of Elevest. You're the chair at Elevate. Yeah. Uh, tell our listeners who may not be familiar with those names yeah. what they are and why they're so important. Well, here's the underlying concept behind both of them. Um, it is to get more money in the hands of women. Um, and, and typically, if we were in a group, I'd say, okay, now everybody, tell me all the bad things that happen when women have more money. And of course, the answer is there's nothing bad that happens. Only good things happen when women have more money for our families, for ourselves, for society, for the economy, for nonprofits. I could reel off all kinds of research about the ripple effect. But Bottom line, good stuff. Um, both of these businesses approach this in different ways. Elevate Network uh, is a professional woman's network. 
Networking is the number one unwritten rule of success in business. Women sort of tend to figure it out later than men do. And so it really is a platform for women to connect with each other in order to help them advance at work. And the results have been terrific. So the other business, which of which I am a, a founder, co-founder, um, is Elevest. And Elevest is an investing platform for women. You, one might not think women need their own investing platform since, of course, money is gender neutral. But the research tells us that the investing industry has fallen short when it comes to serving women for decades and decades. Despite lots of women, you know, investing initiatives, they've all missed the mark and, you know, a lot of money has been spent and, and wasted on it. Um, women keep the majority, the substantial majority of their money in cash, which means they haven't been earning the potential market returns that, that men have. Um, and so we put in thousands of hours of research here at Elevest into what is keeping women from investing. And by the way, it's nothing you think. It's not that women are risk averse. It's not that women don't like math. It's not that women aren't great investors. It's not that women need more financial education, believe it or not. <laughs> um, so we've done a ton of research into the things that keep women from investing and a ton of research into the things that motivate women to invest, which you know, are much more around achieving their goals um, and achieving them with the least amount of risk, not outperforming the market and therefore wanting to have more risk. And I could go through 37 other things, but suffice it to say that Elevest is really the first initiative and certainly the first business that has been successful in truly engaging women and in, in investing. You know, you mentioned risk averse, and I think that's a, a really an interesting phrase, and it makes me think of what you were talking about. Your talking about in your book, and I and I want to jump into your book now here uh, because you were talking about in the book risk aware versus risk averse, yeah. and that's what that's yeah. what made me think about that. And as I, I, I'm I'm a father, I have two young daughters; they're 14 and going on 13. Now, uh, given what I do for a living, it's been easy for me to teach them about investing. But the fact of the matter is, they are investors. They have portfolios themselves mm-hmm. with 11 or 12 Great. stocks, and they they do have that awareness of being an owner of a stock and what comes with that. That risk averse is such a is such a misconception, and I, I hate to ever see that label yeah. fly out there. But I think you've done a good job in combating that in the book. And I, w- I want to talk a little bit about the book. In, in listen, I personally got a real kick out of reading it. I thought it was really well done. It's called "Own okay. It: uh, The Power of Women at Work." The th- first thing that struck me in reading this is that the title. There are probably ninety nine percent of the guys out there would look at the title and say, "Oh, that's not a book for me." And I would actually push back on that and say, this is a book that probably every guy needs to read in order to get the perspective that they don't currently have. Um, and so, hopefully, you can give us a little, a couple of nuggets here that will tempt some folks out there to go buy this book and read it. But I, one of the yeah, things I want to talk about... The, I've, got a, I've got a feeling not many of your, your male listeners are going to read it. Well, I'm going to work hard to see if I can't change that. How about that? Let's at least see if we can't tempt them. There was one part of the book I thought was really cool. The best career advice no one is talking about, invest your money. And here at The Motley Fool, I mean, our, our biggest challenge is yeah. working with people to teach them about investing, getting them to invest, recognizing yeah. that really the greater risk is not investing at all. But sure. so many people out there sure. feel like the market is too risky. Given your time right. on Wall Street, given your time with Elevest and Elevate, what are I mean? How, how, what's the disconnect there? How can we combat that yeah. that misconception? Okay, so there's so much to talk about here. So first of all, you mentioned risk awareness versus risk aversions. Let's just tie that off. Sure. But, you know what's the difference? Your listeners may be thinking that they sound alike. 
Well, we've found with women in investing is it's not that they don't want to take risk. It's that they won't take risk they don't understand. And they will retreat if, you know, you start talking about risk, it is, you know, as standard deviation, you know, the second you bring out sort of the sharp ratio, they, they're out. Um, they, you know, oh, I'll go buy a book, I'll figure it out or whatever. And then, you know, life gets in the way. And so what we found at Ellevest is women need to want to understand risk in plain English. How much money could I lose in a worst, in a tough scenario or worst case scenario? And when you answer that for them, they are then willing to take on that risk. If, you know, if that's risk they feel is appropriate for them. So, so number one, number two, you know, the, the advice, the best career advice to invest, um, you know, look, if you, you know, the equity markets, you know, better than anybody up, down, crash, up a lot. Everybody thinks it's going down. It goes up. Who knows? You know, Trump <laughs> yeah. gets elected. Everybody stays up all night to talk about the market crash. And then it, it goes up. You know, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Warren Buffett doesn't know. I mean, nobody knows. Um, that being said, the equity markets have increased, you know, on an annualized basis, nine and a half percent since the late 1920s, including the crash of 29 and 87 and 2007, et cetera. Um, so putting money in and fighting the urge to look at it or do anything about it, even when things are tough, um, is important. And fighting the urge to think that you know whether the market is too high or too low is going up or down, that's just a fool's game. Yeah. Just a fool's game. And, you know, one of the, we, we talk to women about, and everybody, about, you know, keeping the majority of, you know, keeping your money in cash versus investing it, not all in the equity markets, diversified investment portfolio, not investing it can cost you hundreds of thousands for some people, millions of dollars over the course of our lives. Um, every day you wait can cost, to, you know, tens of dollars, hundred plus dollars for an individual. Um, all because we, we think we may have some insight or we overweight a memory of 2007 and 2008. And, you know, that really cost us. And again, the other mental mistake we tend to make is we tend to think about investing as investing in equities only. And watching, you know, that stock market like a fiend, as opposed to taking a step back, diversify that investment portfolio, including in non-equity investments. Yeah, I think that's a great point, the, the diversification uh, part. And, and you know, it, it's funny, we get that question, what is your, as an analyst, what's your best investment? And I, I, it seems like my answer is always not stock-related. It, it tends to revolve more around time and something with my family at this at this point. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, being, it's being able to look at investing as a much bigger picture term uh, can certainly help you understand the bigger picture implications there. Mm-hmm. Now, you have, I think, in in the book, what it, it seems like at least you felt like it was a controversial position to take. Um, it, but I, you know, I actually agreed with it. To be honest with you, in, in women being put on company boards, and it's not to mm-hmm. say that you don't think women should be put on company boards. It it seems to be that though companies think the answer is well, let's put a woman on the board, and that will you know start to take care of the situation of of getting women more involved in the workplace. And I think that your position more was that that really isn't nearly enough. At the end of the oh, day, it's almost just lip service. Close. Yeah, not even close. Um, and in fact, I, I think it's you know I, I think it's almost the the end of the sentence rather than the beginning. 
Um, and, and just so much attention is being paid to it. Um, you know, I think if we want to have, or I know if we want to have a greater impact, we, if we could do one thing within companies, um, board versus leadership team, you put more women in the leadership team because they can make the micro decisions um, that affect individuals. The board can set policy, oh, we have this family leave, you know, but if the boss within the company sort of looks at you cross-eyed when you want to take that family leave, then you might as well not have the family leave. So between management team and board, I go with management team all the time. P.S., um, one, one thing we didn't mention is I am um, an owner of the, um, a, a partial owner of the Pax Elevate Global Women's Leadership Fund, oh, yeah. mouthful, <laughs> uh, which invests in the top-rated companies for advancing women as, as driven by you know, determined by a percent of the board that are women, percent of leadership team that are women. It's outperformed since we relaunched it, restructured it, but yet four plus years ago. Um, and when we look at the factors that have driven the outperformance, um, it's been more women in the leadership team than it has women on board. So that's number one. That being said, take a big step back. If there was one, one thing I could do to help uh, women advance in business. Um, it would be for the United States of America to have a mandated paid maternity leave. Yeah. Um, you know, that we are the only developed country in the world that does not is effing nuts. That we are one of two countries in the world that do not is effing, effing nuts. <laughs> uh, and just sort of cruel, quite honestly. That we are the richest country in the world. We say we love mothers, uh, but we say we want the economy to grow, and yet we have no paid, mandated paid family leave. And no wonder we've seen a decline in the percent of women in the workforce over the past few decades, which, you know, hurts our economy, keeps us below um, the growth rate that we could achieve. All for the, you know, the view that this is some unbearable expense, that we will have women out of the office for X number of weeks when they have babies. But wait, there's research from KPMG that shows that a, fa- a family leave policy, and specifically maternity leave policy, pays for itself within a year. Because if you're giving a break to people when they have a newborn at home or a a family event, they are more likely to return to work and therefore the company doesn't have to pay to replace them and pay to train their replacement. So it's not an expense, it's an investment. And it's an investment. I mean, as business people, we would invest in in anything that would pay back in a year all day long. Like sure. you don't even think about it, right? Absolutely. All day long. And yet as a country, we have not managed to raise, you know, awareness of this issue or, um, you know, affect this change, which is just crazy to me. It's just crazy. I could get behind that legislation. Having seen what my wife went through, uh, having two children, I mean, anybody who's been through that process understands how trying it is, how difficult it is. And then to see uh, how they can play on the workplace, it, it, I mean, it's it's not fair in a lot of ways. And and certainly, you know, I think you're, you're – 
your use of the word investment there, I think, is 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 a very a very good one. I mean, companies that can look at the bigger picture, take the longer term view, would view that as an investment, creating a, you know a lot of goodwill and, and a valuable uh, employee and associate that uh, would likely return a lot on that investment over the course of her lifetime uh, with well, that company I'll or even in another I'll job that she it, takes. I'll take it even one step further. At Elevest, despite the fact we are a startup, and you think, oh, we can't, you know, we just can't afford this. We, we actually think this is so important that we not only have paid mater- maternity leave or, or put more accurately, paid leave for the primary caregiver, we also have it for the non-primary caregiver. It's 12 weeks for each. And the reason that we do that um, is, one, you know, we, we want people to w- want to work here. Yeah. Um, we want to honor the family. Um, and... You know, if you have the pay, the leave for just one gender, the primary caregiver, which is typically the female, then you have a mommy track. Um, but if you have it for both, then you can't have a mommy track for your whole company. Um, and we think it's one of one of the reasons that Elevest, you know, was recently named by LinkedIn as one of the most sought after startups to work at, um, and the second most sought after startup in New York City to work at. Um, so again, you know, this is we believe an investment, not an expense. Well, I mean, I can tell you, working at a place where I think the 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 general consensus here at the Motley Fool, a lot of people have worked here for a very long time. I mentioned I just I've been here for over nine years, and I think we've we've got a very similar workplace in that we just because there isn't a mandate out there doesn't mean the companies can't take it upon themselves to do things to create a better work environment. And, and I, I we definitely see the power of that playing out here, and it sounds like you're seeing it playing playing out uh, there as well. Um, if let's think longer term, let's look ten years. Down the road, ten years from now, where are Elevate and Elevest? What does success look like for you? Or, I mean, are you even thinking in that context today as a startup? <laughs> no, <laughs> as a startup, gosh, no. <laughs> I'm thinking about how I how I uh, think I can't sleep tonight because there's so much on my plate to be done that I need to pull an all nighter, like I haven't pulled since I was at UNC to get it done. Uh, but look, what, what I would say, and, and I hope you picked up on this, we're really very mission-driven. Um, and we are, at LFS, we are venture capital-backed. Um, but, we, you know, our investors understand that we are, first and foremost, um, about, we call her L, um, who is our user. And we are all about um, helping her become financially stronger. Not, of course, financially independent, but financially stronger. And you know, that we, we're doing that through helping those who can invest, who are ready to invest, invest. And we are also doing that for those who aren't um, through making an enormous investment in our content um, so that we try to be as helpful to as many women as possible. And so, you know, success for me is are more women investing. And by the way, totally okay if they choose to invest with someone else. I mean, I prefer that they invest with all of us. Um, but you know, part of what we are doing um, and that we're proud of is that we started a conversation around the gender investing gap that simply wasn't there a handful of years ago. And so, you know, every once in a while, there was one company that came out with an initiative and they use like all of our words and all of our stats. And I think they even use one of my jokes. Um, <laughs> and so I was sort of irked for a minute. <laughs> you know, like, could you, could you quote us at least, or just mention us, or maybe how about a link to our website might be interesting. Uh, but part of me said, that's okay. Actually, you know, an idea is taking hold 
when it goes away from you and other people are talking about it, you know, without referencing you, that it's becoming part of, of the culture. And so for me, that's it first and foremost. And, and of course, we hope on the heels of that to uh, build a valuable business and believe that we are building a valuable business. Uh, it, it is always, though, first about the mission. Yeah, I mean, mission-driven is extremely powerful, and I definitely mm. picked up on that, no question. Um, you mentioned earlier one of, I believe, your your portfolios, a leadership portfolio that that um, I, I think that you're invested in. And I wanted just to bring up the idea of your impact portfolios for a minute, because that is part of what you're doing, the impact portfolio, solving the mm-hmm. problem that women feel underserved by the investment options that are out there today. I mean, I know it's early in the game. Uh, you have a number of these impact portfolios. And I just, how are your investors yeah. responding to them? It seems like the returns are going pretty well. The investors seem like they're responding positively as well, huh? Well, they asked for it. So the the reason here's here's another place where the traditional investing industry has not served women well, and you know depends on which research study it is. But um, you know, in some research, eighty five, eighty six percent of women say they are at least interested in learning about impact investing, and just a single digit percent of financial advisors have ever even spoken to them about it. And from my experience, and and I have some good experience in the industry. So many folks are caught in, you know, 1997 of, you know, impact investing by definition means giving up returns, which just isn't any longer true, in my opinion, or from the research that I've seen um, more strongly than my opinion. Um, so, we you know, when we were doing the research, women were all about this or all about the option of it and all about wanting to at least learn about it, which isn't surprising because the research also tells us that the number one reason that women accept a new job is mission. Um, they don't want to be paid less. Money's important. They, they don't want to accept less money for it, but they really think about mission, whereas for men, it tends to be more, more about the money and how much you can learn and who you're, who you're going to work with. And so I think this, you know, um, you know, this idea of women as multitaskers, which which we all know exists in our society, really bleeds over into what they look for in their work and what they look for in their investments. And so um, for us, what's been a lot of fun is a part of our impact is not just, you know, super important, you know, um, investing in things that are good for the environment or good for society. We also have a gender lens aspect to our investing. Hold on, hold on, hold on, you might say. <laughs> gender lens impact? Well, let's back up to what we sort of touched on a while ago, which is when you put more money in the hands of women, when you are providing them with business loans, um, you know, when you are investing in their companies and they build wealth, there's a positive trickle effect um, into, you know, their family, their daughters are likely to earn more. They give more of their, they donate more of their money to nonprofits. And we've all heard the statistics around women putting the majority of their wealth, some say 90% plus, back into their community. Um, so gender lens investing can actually be um, impact investing as well. But And then the final thing I would note is you and I talked earlier about diversifying. And when we talk about diversifying, you know, we're always talking about, well, you should have some bonds and maybe you should have some real estate and you shouldn't just be in the U.S. You should be in emerging markets and you shouldn't just be large cap. You should be small cap. Except if you think about it, the one place we're not diversifying is one of the most 
fundamental differences, which is we're, we're investing mostly in men, which we love men, right? Men <laughs> yeah. are great. Um, I'm married to a man. I mean, they're amazing. And we invest in companies mostly run by men, despite, again, the, the research that tells us that it is, you know, diversity um, of leadership teams, et cetera, drives superior performance. And, and so if that's the case, then it only makes logical sense that you don't want all your money going to men. You want to diversify to investments going to women as well. Makes perfect sense to me. Um, okay, listen, I want to be respectful of your time, so we're going to wrap this up, but I love to wrap up my interviews with a book recommendation. We love to read. Our listeners love to read. Uh, and, and Okay, I'm going to ask you for a book recommendation, and you cannot cheat because I feel like I've already recommended your book, so you can't yeah, recommend <laughs> No cheating. You can't recommend own it, uh, but but in all seriousness, is there a book that you've read recently, one that you feel like our our listeners might, uh, might enjoy? Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's we're going to go back. We're going to go a little feminist here. Um, but to your point, you know, for everyone to understand, better understand some of the gender wars that are going on in our country right now, which we, you know, we saw with the, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Yeah. Um, and to try to understand both sides of it. Um, a book I would highly recommend is uh, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traster, um, who's at the New York Magazine. Um, it, it, you, you may or may not agree with any or all of it, um, but for me, who considers myself to be a feminist, um, it was an eye-opener, and I learned a ton. And so for those individuals who are listening who you know, might be more of a... Um, you know, feminists with a, a lowercase f as opposed to an uppercase f, or who still think of feminism as being a synonym for radicalism, um, in order to stretch your mind a bit, I really would recommend reading this. And I read it before I read my book. Well, I mean, you you said a key phrase, I think, that really brings it all home, and it's just understanding both sides. I mean, at the end of the day, that's, that's right. what it's really all about. Keep an open mind, understand both sides. You can only get better from that. Uh, with that, Sally, I'm going to let you get back to changing the world. Thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time to talk with us today. This was a real treat for me. I, I, I thank you and, and uh, wish you all the best with Elevest, Elevate, and everything else thank you're doing. You. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by LinkedIn's Hello Monday podcast. More than three-quarters of Americans report feeling more than a little blue on Sunday nights. But what if Monday became something we could look forward to? Hello Monday examines work, how to like it, how to change it, and maybe even how to love it. Each week, host Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests to investigate the role work plays in our lives. You know, I was just catching up on the most recent episode, uh, or one of the latest episodes, on ideas and how we can make the most of them. I really enjoyed it. And if you're listening to this podcast, and let's face it, you are, because you're hearing me right now, I think you'll enjoy Hello Monday, too. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And joining me in the studio now via Skype is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, it's 80 and sunny right here. I really can't complain at all. <laughs> Spring is in the air. Yeah, it's getting a little bit nicer here, too. A little bit nicer here. Looking forward to uh, at least 
some spring before summer hits. Um, okay, so at the top of the show, I mentioned last week the Fed uh, offered some more insight as to how they're viewing the economy, things they're focused on, and in, 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 uh, whatnot. Uh, what do investors need to know about the Fed's latest comments? Well, as expected, the Fed didn't change interest rates at all. Um, but they did make some other significant changes, specifically to their future project- projections. Um, the Fed was previously expecting to raise rates twice this year. Um, my bold prediction was for three times. <laughs> so I was completely off. I was right on some of my predictions that I made it at the, on our New Year's episode, but this is not one of them. Well, it was a bold. Uh, the, it was a bold prediction, Matt. So we're going to cut you it, some slack. It was, and technically it could still happen. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But So the Fed um, now is not expecting to raise rates at all this year and just one time next year, which is sounds on the surface like a good thing for investors, but you have to look at the reasons behind it. And if you read the language in the Fed's statement, um, the Fed's statement, if you're not familiar, is one of the most <laughs> dissected and overanalyzed documents <laughs> in, in the world. They change a word and the market could go nuts. Um, And this time, that's kind of what happened. Uh, They put in there that the growth of economic activity has slowed from its solid rate. That is not what a lot of investors, particularly bank investors, wanted to hear. Right. Um, Just to bank stocks are down about 10% since the meeting. So that's it's been by far the worst performing sector of the market. Um, A couple of reasons. One, you. Yields dropped, so bank profits can tend to go down when yields go down. Um, banks want higher interest rates in terms of profitability. And not only that, but banks thrive in good economies. Um, when economies are strong, consumers are borrowing money, they're pay- making their payments on time, um, they have money to put in savings accounts, you know, things like that. When the economy gets weaker, all those kind of revenue streams and revenue drivers for banks tend to suffer. And that's what it seems like the market's anticipating right now. Um, just to kind of run through just a few of the numbers briefly, uh, the Fed sees inflation a little bit slower than it it previously did. Uh, it sees unemployment actually ticking up from where it previously saw unemployment. Uh, GDP growth, they were projecting 2.3% in 2019. Now they're projecting 2.1%. So, Generally speaking, the Fed sees things a little bit weaker than it did before, and it's giving bank investors especially kind of reason to take a step back and see what the next step is. Gotcha. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, what what's the next action here for investors or what should investors take away from all of this? But you know what? I have an idea that maybe your advice here is going to lead into your one to watch this week. So, I'm going to go ahead and ask you now, um, as, we, as we go into uh, giving our listeners one to watch for the coming week, what is your one to watch? I am looking at my favorite big bank stock, Bank of America. Um, it's been a staple of my portfolio for a long time. And I've really just been waiting for a chance to add more just because it's been doing so well over the past couple of years. Um, and this little, it's like I said, over little over 10% actually over the past week has kind of given me a reason to look at it, at it again. I think, well, yes, the Fed statement does give us a little bit of caution. I think, I don't think the bank is worth 10% less than it was a week ago. Yeah. 
So I just kind of think the selling's been a little overdone, and that one's on my radar, especially if it continues to go down. Yeah, I had noticed a question on our uh, industry-focused Twitter feed about uh, you know banks kind of feeling the pinch, and that really it's not it's not any one bank. I mean, the sector on the whole, after this news came out, has just it's been a little bit of a tough go about it. But but as we've talked about on shows before, I mean, higher interest rate environments mean these banks can make a little bit more money, and and when interest rates are staying pat, you know that that means it's going to prolong that uh, path to to more profit. Profitability, so that makes sense. But given the way we invest here, I like that call. I like your long-term thinking there. Um, I am going to go with Markel. We talk about Markel every uh, every so often on the show here. The insurer. Um, every time I see Markel creeping back, I wonder if I shouldn't add a few shares. Um, but a couple of things I think worth noting: their shareholder letter came out recently. Uh, we'll tweet a link out to that on the Twitter feed because I really do think investors all would benefit from reading their shareholder letter. It's a good read, a good read for a lot of reasons, but I think there's a segment in there this year on insurance-linked securities that is a really good one. It gives, I think, investors in the company a better understanding of what they are and why Markel is entering that market. Um, but, but also, it's just you read that letter, and I tell you, you walk out of you walk out of reading that letter feeling really good, being an owner of those shares, and truly one of those one of those companies I hope to to still hold 20 years from now. Uh, so. Uh, with that said, Matt, thanks for taking the time out to join us today. Appreciate it. Of course, anytime. Yep, and we'll look forward to next week. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel and Sally Krawcheck, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.